Today's scripture comes from uh, Psalm 2, verses 1 through 12. It is on page 384 of your pew Bibles. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed ones. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in anger and terrifies them in wrath, saying, I have installed my kings on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son today. I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, your kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Really was a uh, great Easter service. How many of y'all were here for Easter last Sunday? I know some of y'all were out of town. It was a great service. Um, Love the music uh, that Keith and Rebecca uh, put together. By the way, Keith left during Sunday school with 18 senior adults for a trip to Charleston and Savannah. You know what a rowdy bunch that is, so pray for him. Uh, but uh, it was just a, it was a wonderful service. Uh, it was a wonderful Sunday uh, in celebration of the risen king. And we talk about Jesus as king. When you really consider that term, uh, there's some critical implications there and some critical things to keep in mind. He's not just our friend. He's not just our rescuer, redeemer, not just our savior. He's our king. In a way, I think that word seems a bit more distant in certain ways that can be unfortunate, but do we really buy into that? I mean, in this very psalm, uh, that was just read. You know, he says that God has given to him, to Christ the King, the world is his inheritance. He's Lord over all things, not just this world, but the entire universe. He is sovereign. But do we recognize him, the risen Christ, as such? There was a survey that was uh, undertaken in 1984 and was replicated in 2008. And basically, uh, they asked Americans do you ever ref- uh, think in terms of God as friend? And then they asked him, do you think of him as king? And I wanted to show you those results. First of all, in 1984, Americans who described God as friend, 29%. And then in uh, 1984, they said, you know, do you describe him as king? No, it was fewer people. Interesting. But you fast forward to 2008, Americans who described God as friend is 18%, a decrease But look at the increase for those who describe God as king. I found that interesting because I'm wondering, are we learning to embrace him more as sovereign, uh, as king? And I think we need to these days. I think we sense that with the uh, chaos out there. Um, Again, I loved Kim's image of the egg uh, after the storm and how fragile it is. And I think we're very, very keyed in these days to how fragile our lives are, how fragile the world is. Maybe we're finally learning to lean into this understanding of Christ as king. But what about you? You know, coronations are very rare uh, for ruling monarchs. When you, you know, have a coronation for a new, new king, uh, the last one actually was for a queen in England, for Queen Elizabeth. It was back in 1953. That was 63 years ago. 
Well, these words in Psalm 2 were written on the occasion of a coronation. It might have been David, King David's coronation. It might have been someone else a little bit further down that Davidic line of the monarchy. We're not sure, but, but what it was was a celebration of one who was ascending to the throne as king over Israel. And the way this is set up, as you can imagine, this psalm being voiced by four different speakers or four different groups, which is why I put uh, in your bulletin, you might see an outline there, just because it's very clear-cut in terms of there are four voices that you uh, read and hear as you go through this psalm. And you might want to hang on to that even as we have the verses up on the screen or as you read in your own Bible. But whenever a new king of that Davidic line had a coronation, a hope ran through the people. Could this be the one? They had that understanding at that point of some anointed Messiah who would come along and redeem Israel in a powerful way. They didn't realize it would be the entire world, but they were hoping he would redeem Israel. Could this be the anointed one? And this anticipation kept building up after David passed on, and they wanted basically another David. They wanted David the sequel. But every time they would have a new king, and there would be a sense of disappointment, a sense of disillusionment with this new king. And the Old Testament really ends begging for this Messiah to come along, this one who would fill the throne in a way that no one ever had. And they began to wonder, did God's promises fail? Did God give up on this idea? You know, the expectations of this song were never really fulfilled in the Old Testament era. And and they would voice this psalm over the centuries with a sense of yearning and expectancy, just hoping and hoping that this would happen. One day God would crown his very king. And it was finally fulfilled, obviously, in Christ, the son of who was of the lineage of David, so he was a son of David. He was also obviously the son of God. But again, do you and I live our lives in a way that we recognize him as king. That more distant term and yet one that demands so much of us. And so we're going to break it down into these four sections. And again, you can look at the outline um, and kind of see where we're going. First of all, the nations speak, verses 1 through 3. It begins with a question. Look at verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain. Now, what are these futile plans they have? How are they plotting in vain? What is this all about? Well, basically, they want to be God. And the question is, why does humankind want to rebel against the reign of God? And really, the, the Hebrew words here connote a, a mob mentality, almost a violent, destructive mentality. Um, you know, in, in a way, I, you know, there's an intense example from last Easter. I remember going home and just being brokenhearted, hearing about what happened in Lahore, Pakistan. You might remember all of these Christians who were massacred, 72 killed, uh, 370 wounded uh, at the hands of the Taliban. Uh, some of you know um, uh, Leslie and Chad Seagraves, who run uh, 1040 Connections, and they have connections with people in Lahore. They know some of the people there and have obviously been grief-stricken uh, with that. That's a marvelous ministry that we help uh, support here. But bring it back to us, you know, bring it back to our level in our spiritual lives, because how often do we plot in vain to take God's place? Don't we do that on a regular basis in a shameless act of rebellion? Sure we do. It might not be in a very violent fashion, 
But on a regular basis, we're trying to take his place, and we plot to do so, and we uh, rationalize and find ways to, to explain why we're doing such. But let's go on with this image. The nations are conspiring, and then the leaders of those nations are conspiring. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, and we'll get to what uh, they say in just a moment, but the, the image here is of these world leaders gathering together and conspiring. They hear the mob outside crying out that they want to have uh, this, this, uh, this rebellion uh, fulfilled. And why are they plotting against God anyway? It's answered in verse 3. What are they saying? Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. What's going on? They don't want to mess with God. They don't want to be constrained. They don't want to be restrained. They don't want to be held in check. They don't want to have to carry this heavy yoke of God. They want to be rid of it. They want to rid themselves of him. They don't want to have to submit to him. And it really is as old as Adam and Eve and as new as you and me, you know. To this day, we marvel at it. Adam was told by God, you have everything here. You have dominion, a very kingly term. You have dominion over everything. There's just one thing. Remember who you are and who I am. There's just one little line you just don't need to cross, and you'll be fine. But Adam and Eve cross it, and we do too. You know, Sometimes we don't want God inconveniencing us with his authority. We don't want him inconveniencing our autonomy. We want it for ourselves. And that's why some people don't want a God. It really has less to do with rational arguments against God. It has to do with personal reasons. Uh, There's a book I read called Unreasonable Doubt by a guy named Jim Spiegel. And he quotes two contemporary philosophers who basically said that they were atheists, not based on intellectual grounds, but on personal grounds, for personal reasons. One of them is a guy named Thomas Nagel. He's an atheist philosopher. And this is what he wrote. He said, uh, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right about my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that where I have to answer to a God. And then there's a 20th century ethics philosopher, Mortimer Adler, Interesting guy, uh, he wound up being baptized quietly at the age of 81. After all these years being an atheist and arguing against God, he became a believer. And it's interesting when he reflected on it, he confessed to rejecting Christianity for so long. Why? Because he said, and the quote's up there, uh, he says, because it would require a radical change in my way of life, a basic alteration in the direction of my day-to-day choices, as well as in the ultimate objectives to be sought or hoped for. The simple truth of the matter is that I did not wish to live up to being a genuinely religious person. Well, we can read that and smile and keep ourselves at arm's length, but how often do we resist having to live up to being submissive Christ followers? Submissive followers bowing down to our king. Again, do you see him as king? You know, do we know what he demands of us? Or do we want to free ourselves of that submission? You know, we'd rather draw outside the lines a lot. We'd rather draw up our own rules. It goes back to Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. What was the first thing the prodigal son said? Dad, I want everything now. And he thinks he gets everything, and he winds up waking up, you know, lying in uh, a bunch of pig manure. And he says, isn't it great to be free? 
That's what it's like to be free from God, ultimately. So in verse 1, the psalmist says, why are people doing this? Why are they conspiring, plotting against God as if they can? It's absurd and useless to do so. Well, why do you and I sometimes conspire against God? Because we do. We really do. In a way, this psalm isn't so much about human history as it is about you and me. But then there's an answer from God. The nations speak and conspire, but then verses 4 through 6, God speaks God responds. And here we move from earth to heaven. We move from these earthly kings to the one heavenly king who is king over all things. And he has chosen a son who will be his king. Verse 4, look at this. God laughs. It's one of the few times in the Old Testament you find God laughing. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Now the word scoff there is a little bit more intense than we might think. It's not a laugh of scorn. It's not a laugh of rejection. It's kind of like a human father seeing his child trying to lift something or fix something or or work something that is way beyond their abilities or their strength or their their mental uh, capacity, something a child can't do. And, And he's laughing at how small, in a sense, the child is, though the child's trying to be big. Well, that's us. You know, big as we might think we are, we're not. I just... Uh, saw something the other day that said that there are now 170 billion galaxies in the observable universe, in the observable universe, and that there are 45 billion light years between us and what we see as the edge of the universe. Think about that. How do you think God looks on human beings on this little planet when we plan to rebel against him? (laughs) I can just see him kind of chuckling and rolling his eyes like, well, here we go again. We think we're big. We think we're big, but against the backdrop of God and this universe he's created, we are as small and fragile as the egg that Kim was talking about earlier. And he sees the rebellion in us, and maybe it's funny for a while, but God's laughter doesn't go forever. Look at verses 5 and 6. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Now, originally, that was used to praise some king who wound up you know, being another disappointment as to one who was not the Messiah. But ultimately, this really does point to the living Christ. It really is prophetic in pointing to Christ who was the Son of God and winds up on the throne But so often we fail to see it that way. You know, Jesus becomes the grace-giving answer to this wrath, to this anger that God has. He's the answer to that. But the sad thing is, too many people don't recognize him. A lot of people did not recognize him when Jesus came to earth, or they would not recognize him, though they knew that they should, did not want to call him king And yet think about it, he's still alive through the power of the Spirit, but there are people who might even be touched by the Spirit somewhat, but they will not surrender themselves to him and see him as the king. And this crowned king one day, as Scripture says, will leave the throne again and come back. We'll come back here, and it'll be a different story. But the question is, will you recognize him having lived in a way that you did not reject him as king. Craig Brian Larson tells the story about the first summer he and his wife were dating, and she worked as a temp 
uh, at a bank for a time. And, and she was only there for two weeks, and she saw a bunch of dysfunctional, unprofessional behavior. She just quickly noticed it. And it was among a team of four people along with a supervisor. And the supervisor was a generation older than the other four who were about college age. And they would get together and they would go and take these long coffee breaks together way beyond what they were supposed to be doing. And they, they would sometimes sit on the supervisor's desk and they would talk and gossip and giggle and that kind of thing. It was very unprofessional. And Craig's wife kept noticing that. But the friendliness that they had amongst themselves was in stark contrast to this one other person who was supposed to be on their team. It was a woman in her mid-30s. And she had come to start working there just a week before Craig's wife had gotten there. But they just shunned her. I mean, this little clique of five just decided she wasn't supposed to be among them. She would go over to the desk where everybody was gathering, and she would try to engage in conversation. But as soon as she walked over there, the conversation ended, and people slowly would go back to their seats. Uh, They talked about her behind her back. They made fun of what she was wearing each day. She would come over and try to reason with people sometimes, and they would just roll their eyes. Uh, When they were in a group and she'd say something, somebody would wink at somebody else. It was just very, very derisive and exclusive. And so this middle management worker, you know, was just perceived, obviously, as an intrusion. Well, two weeks into her temp job, Craig's wife walked in on Monday morning and was very surprised to see a totally different scenario. There was no gossiping, no giggling, no long coffee breaks. All the workers had their eyes riveted to their work. And this cliquish team suddenly started addressing the supervisor in a very respectful, very business-like way. They even seemed to have a little fear in their eyes. Well, That makes sense. The new supervisor was not a stranger. The old supervisor had been let go. The new supervisor was the 35-year-old woman who had been shunned and mocked. The bank had hired her to be the new supervisor, but they told her to go kind of incognito for a couple of weeks just so she could learn what what the working style was of the people there. So she observed the work style of that team. Well, you see how that turned out. But Let's kind of apply that to us. Think about Christ coming to earth. In his first coming, many people rejected him, shunned him, excluded him, mocked him, did even worse to him. And yet, he revealed his glory at his resurrection the last week, as we talked about last week. He um, ascended to the right hand of God. But one day, he will come to earth again to establish his kingdom universe-wide, I would say. And there will be no mistaking who is in charge. And God help those who have failed to recognize him for who he is. Not just as a friend, not just as a savior, but as our Lord and King. And that King now speaks. You go to verses 7 through 9, and this is really pointing to Christ the King. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Now this is really the new king and really Christ the king, the king over the new Jerusalem speaking. And this is just kind of cool. Let's go to uh, biblical perspectives class for just a second because I really like this. It says, you are my son today. I have become your father. That is a, uh, to use a, I'm trying to be hip here and down with it. Let's use, it's really a mashup of two other verses. Is it a mashup? Is that what it's called? It's a fusion of verses. I don't, it's a mixture of two verses. Let me put it that way. I can't be hip. Okay. Uh, You are my son, today I have become your father. Now this is from a kingly psalm, right? But it really becomes meshed together 
with another verse. Hey, go two forward. Go, go forward two, TJ. Do you remember this? One more. In Luke, this is Luke's version, but this is in uh, uh, all the, the Gospels. After Jesus is baptized, it says, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Do you know this verse? That statement, You are my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased, is a meshing in the Hebrew of those two verses. Now, it's the kingly verse in Psalm 2-7, but it's also from Isaiah 42, verse 1. Go back one, TJ. Thank you for your patience. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. What's cool is this is from the song of the suffering servant in Isaiah. And I think this is so cool because I think what God the Father is saying to his beloved son is, yes, you will become king, but we all know and acknowledge that you are going to suffer towards that. You will be a suffering king, a suffering messiah. So it's a powerful verse that winds up having huge significance right at the outset of Jesus' ministry after he is baptized. He's saying, son, you're going to suffer, but you will be king. Just, just very cool. Okay, so uh, the question is, really, will you be willing to serve this suffering king? Uh, I talked with a missionary recently who had been in Ghana and apparently, with the dominant language in Ghana, you never can ask a person, what are your beliefs or what is your religion? You have to ask, whom do you serve? I think that's a great way of putting it. You know, regardless of your doctrine, your dogma, your denomination, your creed, your God really is whom you're serving or what you're serving. And God isn't finished speaking to the anointed king. Go ahead to the next one. Uh, yeah, Psalm 2, 8, and 9. Only ask, and this is God speaking really to, to Christ the King. Only ask, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. It's really saying you will become the all-powerful one. Now, it's not like Jesus went around breaking people and smashing things around, except when he overturned the tables and things like that. But What is this saying here? Well, one thing I like to ask is, I wonder if these verses here, with which Jesus was clearly familiar, were a source of strength and encouragement for him, especially when things got difficult, when he was going through times of rejection and temptation and injustice and ultimately torture and suffering and death. I wonder if these words were whispered back to him. You know, I will give you the nations as your your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. In other words, you will be all-powerful, not in an ambitious sense, not, not to gain power, but really to set things right. Jesus was all about getting things set right in the face of injustice and a lack of wholeness in the world. And I'm wondering if these words encouraged him along the way when it was a very low time for him based on how he was being treated. He knew that this would come along and that he could set things right for people, yea, even the ones who were doing him wrong at that moment. Well, the psalmist speaks now. Look at verses 10 through 12. It says, Now then, you kings, it's like a warning, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son or he will become angry. Some of you might have a translation that says, kiss the royal son or kiss the son. That means kiss in submission, like kissing someone's hand, someone's feet. Submit to God's royal son or he will become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of all your activities for his anger flares up in an instant. Now, is that the way Jesus was? 
Well, his anger did flare up in an instant with people who were being self-righteous, basically. But again, as I tell my uh, biblical perspective students all the time, you've always got to study the Old Testament through the lenses of the New Testament. Because obviously Jesus comes along and fulfills the Old Testament. It's not like he discounts the Old Testament. He deepens and fulfills it. What's great is his anger doesn't flare at those who seek his grace. But, but let me say, let, let's not soften this up too much. He is our friend, yes, but he's also our king. And, and with this king, there will be a reckoning one day, whether once we die, whether once he returns. And someone might say, well, wait a minute, how can you say someone might deserve such judgment, maybe such everlasting destruction? You know, if God is just, you know, can he judge someone this way? And the best explanation I ever heard, and I had to think about it to really think, do I really buy into this, but there was a middle school minister who came up with this, and I thought this was solid. He outlined these certain stages in a scenario and then made a strong point. He said, suppose a middle school student punches another student in class. What happens? Well, that student is given detention. Suppose during the detention, this boy, same boy, punches the teacher. What happens? Student gets suspended from school. Suppose on the way home, the same boy punches a policeman on the nose. What happens? He finds himself in jail. Suppose some years later, the very same boy is in a crowd waiting to see the President of the United States. And as the President passes by, the boy lunges forward to punch the President. What happens? He's probably shot dead by the Secret Service. And this middle school minister's point was this. In every case, the crime is precisely the same, but the severity of the crime is measured by the one against whom it is committed. You see that? And you think about that, and and you think, what justifiably comes from sinning against, rejecting, lashing out at King Jesus? Uh, Perhaps ruin and destruction and, and decay and alienation and separation and waste. Bottom line, tragedy. But thank God for the very last sentence of this whole psalm. Here's the gospel. But what joy for all who take refuge in him. We deserve destruction. It's what we deserve. And by our rebellion, we continue to deserve it. But his grace rescues us from it. Our king rescues us from it. What a joy to take refuge in our king. And with that said, I'm going to show just a little bit of a clip, about three minutes of something I shared one time before. It was a different clip with music with it, but I like this one because it's just the dude's voice. Uh, Reverend S.M. Lockridge, who for over 30 years was pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego, marvelous African-American preacher. In 1976, he preached a sermon called, That's My King. How many of y'all have ever heard this? Have y'all ever heard, That's My King? And talk about the King of Kings. This guy kind of sums it up wonderfully in about three minutes. Listen to these words, and I love that we don't have the music with it. Just listen to the man's words describing who our king is. The Bible says my king is a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. 
He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Uh, I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my And all God's people said. It's a good word. It's a great word. So is he your king? Let's pray together. Forgive us, O oh God, when we soften our fellowship of you, when we fall into cheap grace and not recognize the costly grace it took for your son on the cross, who by his suffering and death and resurrection became our king. Forgive us when we take it lightly. Forgive us when we make all this so encultured. Help us, teach us to be radical believers, countercultural followers of your son, the king. In his name we pray. Amen.